Okay, Melissa's going to read our first reading and push on the second. Okay, the first readings um, come from Exodus, so we're going to be reading from Exodus 15 and also 17. So Exodus 15, we'll be starting at verse 22. Okay, Exodus 15, starting at verse 22 through to 27. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. He made a statue and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his eyes, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the waters. And then continuing in chapter 17, verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses... Give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The second reading uh, for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. You can find that on page 1056 of your pew Bibles. Now I want you to know, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things became examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples. And they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bashan. Let me uh, pray for us. I'll give you a moment just by yourself to quieten your own heart as you come to sit under the precious word of God. And Lord, we just simply ask us tonight that you would speak and that we would listen. Tonight I want to talk about uh, whinging or complaining or grumbling. Uh, What qualifies me for this? Well, I'm a pom for a start, and so poms are good at whinging apparently, aren't we? Although I have to say that after 12 years in Australia, I reckon that Australians are better whingers than any Englishman, especially on a Saturday night when they lose the rugby. But why do we grumble? Just think about this last week. How many times this week have you complained? How many times have you grumbled? How many times have you whinged? When things don't go your way, why are you so quick to grumble and so slow to pray? When you're disappointed with life, why are you quick to whinge and slow to worship God? When you're sad or when you're lonely or when you're just longing for that friend, why do you find it so hard to, to get down on your knees and to pray and so easy to have a sort of pity party? Here's what Robert Hughes says in a book called The Culture of Complaint. He said, we live in a culture in which we perceive ourselves as being entitled to all our wants and all our desires. And when that doesn't happen, we become the victims. And so we whinge and we complain and we grumble. And if we see it as somebody else's issue that caused our inconvenience, then we sue that person or that institution. That's the culture of complaining that we live in. Or for those who prefer the more simple example, uh, we're just like the little kids that you see in McDonald's 
where the dad's bought them their Happy Meal with the, the Monsters, Inc. toy attached, and they've got the Coke, and they've got the Sunday with the caramel sauce. But when they can't have that 50-cent soft-serve cone, it's like World War III, isn't it? Dad, you don't love me. Dad, you hate me. Dad, you never give me anything. And there's tears, and there's tantrums, and there's hissy fits. Have you ever seen that, that poor mother at the, the checkout at Woolworths? Well, all the kid wants is that chocolate bar that's uh, quite neatly placed next to the checkout till. And because they can't have it, because they're not allowed it, they're screaming and they're crying and they're in, everyone's embarrassed by this poor child. But when you stop and think about it, when I stop and think about it, that is me. That's me and God. When, when life doesn't go my way, I'm very quick to complain. I'm very slow to pray. When life is tough, when a, a desire or a need has not been met, I'm very quick to whinge, but I'm very slow to worship. Is that just me? In life's difficulties, in life's disappointments, in life's Trials and tribulations, we are quick to grumble and we're slow to grow in our faith. So if you're a grumbler here tonight, if you're a winter here tonight, you need to listen to this sermon, as I do. We're in Exodus chapter 15. <clears throat> so far the focus in Exodus has been on, on God and his character. Let me give you a quick recap. Chapters 1 to 5 is all about God who hears, God who sees, God who Acts, God who remembers, God who is faithful to his promises. Uh, chapter 6 to 11 with the plagues is about God who is all powerful. He's, he's powerful to save, he's powerful to judge. Chapters 12 and 13, remember the God who redeems those who shelter under the blood of the Lamb. God rescues them, God saves them, God redeems them. Uh, and last week, chapter 15, uh, God is our strength, God is our song, because uh, saved people sing. Uh, but tonight's passage is really like the turning point in the book. From this moment onwards, things change. Uh, but God hasn't changed, has he? God never changes. So, so what has changed? The people have changed. Because they're no longer slaves, they're free people. They're no longer oppressed people, they're redeemed people. They're no longer in Egypt, they are heading towards the promised land. And as God's people stand in history, at this moment in history, with their backs on their old way of life, with their backs against Egypt, and they're walking towards the promised land, what is life going to be like for them? You ever thought about that? As, as you walk towards heaven, with, with your back on your old way of life, you're a new person in Christ, you're saved, you're redeemed, what is life going to be like? I'll let you into a secret. God's normal way of working is not to take the saved person straight to glory. He normally leaves us here on earth for quite a while. And I'm not perfect yet, so I'm guessing you're not perfect yet. And he never promises a, a, a nice straight path to heaven and an easy life. And the question for the Israelites and the questions for you and I is how are we going to respond on this journey towards the promised land, on this journey towards heaven. 
in the highs and the lows of life, in the, the wonderful times and the wilderness times, in the delightful times and the desert times, how will you respond to God? Because these Israelites are like these baby believers. They've got so much to learn. And God uses this desert time, this wilderness time, to, to teach them and to train them and to change them. See, it's easy to start out the Christian life full of joy, singing. You, you can remember when you first became a Christian, you came into church and you could sing all these wonderful choruses, my Jesus, my Savior, let's bring that song back. But you know, the longer you've been a Christian and the, the harder life gets, it's harder to sing sometimes. As the old hymn says, I'm a pilgrim in this barren land. I, I'm doing it tough. I, I'm in the wilderness. I'm in the desert. So how are you going to respond then? And these chapters are about you and me. They're the kind of chapters when you first read Exodus 15 to 17, you, you kind of shake your head. Uh, you look at the Israelites and you think, how could they have been so stupid? How could they so quickly forget all God had done for them? How could they be so slow to pray to God? How can they be so quick to complain to God? And as soon as you shake your head, you kind of look at yourself and go, no, that's me, isn't it? Quick to grumble, slow to pray. So my big point tonight is this grumbling. God's people question God's faithfulness. Let's look at the text. Chapter 15, verse 22. So, so God's people have just sung <clears throat> the horse and rider song, and they're heading off into the desert singing loudly, my God is so wonderful, he's my savior, he's my warrior king, my strength and my song and my salvation, and isn't life wonderful now that we're saved people? But very quickly the chorus turns to complaining. Verse 22, Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They're in the desert. And they journeyed for three days in the wilderness, just three days, without finding any water. And it's kind of ironic that three days earlier they were surrounded by water as the Red Seas parted. There was too much water, but now they have no water. Now, now what should they have done at this point? At this point, what should they have done? Cried out to God, asked God, prayed to God. I mean, God is surely powerful enough to provide some water. What do they do? Verse 23, they came to Marah. That word means bitter. And the water is bitter. But they don't cry out to God, do they? they verse 24, they grumble. They whinge. They complain. Why, Lord? What, Lord? How long, Lord? And they grumbled to Moses about God. What are we going to do to drink? Are you ever shocked, friends, by how quickly your own personal confidence in God evaporates? Are you ever shocked by that? Sometimes I find my spiritual life a bit like a, a spiritual roller coaster. Now, one day I'm on this spiritual high, and God is wonderful, and life's wonderful. It's easy to sing, it's easy to pray, and suddenly the next day I'm, I'm down in the depths. 
But God hasn't changed. It's just that my life has changed. My circumstances have changed. My needs have changed. And Moses does what we should do. Moses does what the Israelites should have done. Verse 25, he cried out to the Lord. He prayed to God. The word there for cried out is, is, is a pleading. It's a, it's a begging. It's that kind of, that humbly on his knees, so just calling out to his God saying, I'm desperate, Lord. Hear my prayer. And God hears and God sees and God acts and God shows Moses a tree in verse 25. And when, Mo- when Moses threw that tree into the water, that bitter water becomes drinkable water. So life's good again and the people are happy again. Then verse 27, they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they, they camped there by the waters. Lavish water supplies, lots of food to eat. I wonder how God's people reacted then. They're happy again. They're satisfied again. They've got food, they've got water. I wonder whether they were embarrassed. I wonder whether they got together and thought, how silly we were to question God. I doubt it. They're more like you and I, just just complacent when life's good. They're happy again and so God is good again, as though God is not good when they're not happy. It's not long before they start grumbling again, but this time in chapter 16, it's, it's more like the ungrateful child with a selective memory. The ungrateful child with a selective memory. Now, mum and dad bought the child an iPod Touch last year, but this year they want an iPad, and because they can't have the iPad, then life isn't worth living. In fact, life would have been better if I'd never had the iPod at all. I wish you'd never given me that iPod a year ago. That, that's God's people now in verse ch- chapter 16. So they leave Elim with its luscious water and they travel again into the desert, into the wilderness. Verse 2, the entire Israelite community, that's almost a million people and they're grumbling and they're whinging and they're complaining in the wilderness. And it's almost blasphemous, verse 3. God's people who have experienced God's rescue and God's salvation, they are saying, if only we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. God, I wish you'd never bother to save me. Life would have been better, God, if we'd faced your judgment and died like the Egyptians. And then they put on the rose-tinted spectacles because they've forgotten about the beating, the oppression, the slavery. They just look back and all they can see is sitting by pots of meat and eating all the bread. They had food there. Instead, you brought it into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. I hope you understand, friends, that the, the real issue is not food and it's not water. The real issue here, the root issue here, is a lack of faith. That these people really doubt whether God cares for them, whether God can provide for them, whether God sees their need, whether God knows their pain, and whether God is with them. That's the real complaint. That's what he says down in verse 8. 
Moses said, the Lord will give you meat and he'll give you bread. He's heard the complaints that you're raising against him, against God. Your, your complaints are not against us. They're against the Lord. Do you ever stop and think about that? You know, when, when you whinge and when you complain that you haven't got this and you haven't got that and you want that, you're actually complaining against your God. You're saying, God, you don't really love me. If you did love me, you'd give me this. God, you can't provide for me, otherwise you would do it for me. Isn't that shocking? What's amazing here is God's response. God doesn't punish them. There's no hint of retribution from God. God doesn't berate these Israelites like silly children. God God is more like the loving, patient, persevering father. You've seen a father trying to teach his kid to ride a bike. And the kid is complaining and whinging, I hate this, I don't want to do this. And the father just keeps on, come on, keep going, learn the lesson. We'll go on to verse 4. God didn't need to do this, but God does do it. He provides bread, he rains down bread from heaven. It's a divine provision, it's from heaven. It's a lavish provision. He's raining down bread for you. It's a daily provision. Verse 4, the people to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And this way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. God is so kind to us. He, he tests us. For the Israelites, he's saying, will you trust me to provide for your daily needs? I'm not going to provide enough bread for you for the next month. Just for today, and then for tomorrow, and then for the next day. Will you depend on me daily? Will you cry out to me daily? Does that remind you of anything in the Bible? Give us today our daily bread. Our God wants us to be daily dependent on him. Humbly coming before him every day and saying, God, meet my needs today. I trust you to provide for me today. Maybe that's the problem of living in a society where we have so much. I remember working in Africa, gosh, it's almost 20 years ago. Uh, they were people who prayed that prayer, give us today our daily bread. Because literally they were dependent on God to provide their next meal for them. But they were joyful Christians. They were humble Christians. Because they depended on God a lot more than we do. There's a test here for the Sabbath, isn't there, in verse 5? Because on the seventh day, God doesn't provide bread. He wants his people to rest. So on the sixth day, he provides twice as much. So God answers their prayer. Verse 13, at evening, quail came. If you don't know what quail is, it's kind of a small chicken. It covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp, and the people don't know what that is. And so they cried in verse 15, what is this? And the Hebrew for what is it is the word man, hence the name manna. And Moses says in verse 15, it's the bread of the Lord. He's given it to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. 
Gather as much as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. God is so good. He gives very clear commands to obey. Just gather enough for each person. But, verse 17, some gathered a lot and some gathered a little. And miraculously, everyone has just enough. And God says, down in verse 19, don't let any of it remain till morning. Just eat it all today and I'll provide you tomorrow. But again, God's people disobey and they didn't listen. And so the bread turns into worms and maggots. And the rest of this chapter is this wonderful contrast between God's provision and God's faithfulness and God's goodness and the people grumbling and the people complaining and the people disobeying. But surely once God has taught them twice, they've learned a lesson, haven't they? They had no water. They should have asked, but they didn't. They grumbled. When Moses asked, God provided. They had no food. They should have asked, they didn't. When Moses asked, God provided. They must have learned a lesson that you're to depend on God, you're to cry out to God, you're to ask God in whatever situation of life you are facing because God sees you and God cares for you and God provides for you. But they haven't learned a lesson. Look at chapter 17. This time they're camping at Rephidim in verse 1, but what's the problem? There's no water to drink. What should they have done? Tell me. Ask God, cry out to God, plead with God, trust God. What do they do? Verse 2, the people complained, give us water to drink. And Moses is kind of saying, why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing the Lord? Look at that phrase, why are you testing the Lord? Because that's what grumbling is. It's testing God, it's questioning God, it's saying, God, unless you give me what I really want, then you're not good and you're not sovereign, you don't care and you can't provide. And again, Moses cries out in verse 4, what should I do with these people? And God answers in verse 5, wonderful verse. He says, go on ahead of the people, keep moving forward towards the promised land, take some elders with you, take that, that staff, a symbol of my presence, a symbol of my power, and strike the one that struck the Nile. Take that staff with you and go. Because I'm going to stand there. I'm going to be with you. My presence will be there with you on that rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, I will miraculously provide water for you. And the people will drink. Our God is so good, isn't he? Our God meets our needs. He hears our prayers. He provides for us. But we'd never grumble, would we? We're not complainers, are we? See, see, complaining is not an exodus problem. It's an eternal problem. We all complain. We've got life. We've got freedom. We've got redemption. But the slightest struggle in life, the hint of some hardship in life, and we are quick to whinge and slow to worship. And I have to say, it's particularly life on the North Shore in Sydney, where most of us have had what we want when we want it. And when we don't get it, we have these kind of childish hissy fits. Let me be clear at this point. 
I don't think it's wrong to complain to God, to cry out to God. You know, when life is really tough, read the Psalms. The psalmist gets down on their knees and they, they, they say, why, God, have you forsaken me? What are you doing, God? The difference here is that they're not complaining or they're not begging God at all. They're just complaining about God to other people. Or they're just silent. They never bother to actually go to their God and get on their knees and pray. The thing about grumbling this week is a very personal issue for me, especially this week. What is, what is the root of our grumbling? I think deep down we just forget who God is, don't we? We're quick to forget his character, his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, his provision. We're quick to forget who we are, precious children of God, loved by a heavenly Father who cares for us, who will give us what we need, not what we want, but what we need. We're quick to forget all of that. And we're very quick to see life through the lens of me, my plans, my wants, my needs, as if we actually know what is best for us. But deep down, it's, it's testing the Lord. It's not trusting the Lord. It's questioning whether God does care or whether God can provide. And that's the warning from these chapters. Grumbling leads to drifting. That's how the rest of the Bible applies these chapters. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, these are examples for us. Don't be like it. Because so many of these grumblers actually began to see God as the, the person who would just be there for them whenever they needed them. But they never really trusted him or followed him. Or, or Psalm 95, we've read it already tonight. The warning today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as the people did at Massa and at Meribah in the wilderness. And God was angry with them. That's the warning. Grumbling leads to a hard heart. Grumbling leads you to doubt God. Grumbling leads you to distrust God. And grumbling leads you to drifting away from God. You know when people drift away from church... Haven't been to church for a while. If you trace their sort of walk with God, you, you can always have a, an episode where they were just dissatisfied and they were whinging and they were complaining and they were grumbling all the time about something. Doesn't matter what it was. Never happy, never content. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And I'm pleading with us as a church, to you and to me, please don't be grumblers. In the deserts of life, in the hard times of life, don't whinge, but worship your God. Because on the screen, growing, God tests his people so they will trust his presence and trust in his provision. Do you see the word test? It comes a few times in these chapters. So in verse 15, verse 25, God made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and God tested his people there. Here's the test, verse 26. If you carefully obey Yahweh your God 
And if you do what is right in his eyes, and if you pay careful attention to his commands, and if you keep all his statues, I won't inflict any illness on you. I'm Yahweh who heals you. It's a test of obedience. Will you do what God tells you to do? The same in chapter 16, verse 4. He says, this way I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. The test there is very simple. Will you just take enough bread for today? That's the test. Same in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you. So you will fear him and will not sin. Or just flick over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. It kind of applies this passage for us. It's a shocking application, but a truthful one. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. I'll wait till you get there. It says, remember the Lord your God. He led you on the entire journey of these 40 years in the wilderness. So he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. And then he gave manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, if they were never in need, if they were never in want, they would never have learned the lesson to trust God. And you know, it's a difficult truth, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes God deliberately places us in difficult situations, not to crush us, not to watch us fail, but to grow us, to mature us, to build our confidence in his provision, in his presence. And the most joyful Christians I know are the ones who have suffered most. That humble trust, that trust and obey, for there's no other way. Here's what John Piper writes. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is like a winding and troubled road. Switchback after switchback. And the point of the Bible story is like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, but to feel in our bones that God is for us in all these strange turns. God isn't just showing up after the trouble and cleaning up the mess. God is plotting the course. God is managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that about life? That with all the delightful times and all the desert times, all the twists and turns of life, God is there with you. God is growing you. God is maturing you. Uh, That's the the question that the Israelites really asked in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. They said, is the Lord among us or not? And isn't that what we want to know in life? Is God with us? Does God care for us? Can God provide for me? Isn't that the deepest question in life? In the desert times and the delightful times, is God really there with you? And the answer is, of course he is. How do you know? You haven't got a a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire today. How do you know that God is with you? 
Remember when Jesus was born and the angel came to Mary and, and, and she said, he'll be called Jesus, he'll save you from our sins. And there's another name there. What was the second name that the angel gave to Mary? You will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So in Jesus, you have someone who never leaves you. He's with you in your sadness. He's with you in your pain. He's with you in your tears. He's your comforter. He's your strength. He's your security. He's your hope. He's your provider. And I know it sounds trite, but it's true. Jesus, your Emmanuel, he never leaves you, never forsakes you. More than that, when Jesus walked on earth, he said, I am the, I'm the bread of life. I'm better than manna from heaven. I actually satisfy all your needs. He said, I, I am the, uh, the one who offers you water to, to quench your thirst so you will never thirst again. Because if you drink of me, you'll have eternal life. And here's the truth. When you know Jesus in that deep, personal, intimate way and you trust Jesus and even in the bumpy times of life and the, the desert times of life, you trust Jesus and you cry out to Jesus and you, you plead with Jesus and you cling on to Jesus. He never leaves you. He's your strength. He's your comfort. He's your joy. And God grows you and he matures you through those times. There are lots of I- events and situations in my life that I would never have chosen to go through. But God took me there. And I'm thankful that he did. Because I'm closer to God because of it. So my basic question tonight is this. Will you grumble or will you grow? Will you whinge your way through life or will you worship your way through life? Will you complain Or will you cry out to God? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the way that you patiently and lovingly teach us. Thank you for the way that you you grow us through those desert times and you, you teach us wonderful truths about yourself. Thank you for the way that you've done it in our lives. Help us, Lord, please, to have hearts and have minds and have mouths that are slow to grumble, slow to complain, slow to whinge, and quick to worship you. In Jesus' name.